Hello and welcome to the First Slugger TV of 2020. In this episode we're going to be looking at the new reformed Stormont government, how the parties got in there and some of the key challenges uh, that the new devolved institutions are going to have. And to go through these issues we have the Irish News security correspondent Alison Morse and we have the political commentator Sarah Crichton. So Alison, I'll start with you. Let's just jump back three weeks. This is the first Slugger TV we've actually recorded in nearly three years where we've had a devolved government. So just to ask, when on that Thursday night, when the Secretary of State and the Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, came out on the steps of Stormont and announced that this was make up your mind time, what did you think of the strategy that the two governments had? It's amazing that it's only been three weeks, so many things seem to have happened. It was a touch of genius from them because the stand shoulder to shoulder thing really worked but what really worked was handing the deal out saying here you go, this is what's on offer, take it or leave it which meant the public got to see it as well and read the details and we know that we live in a very politicised part of the world, people do read these things. It involved you know, that there was going to be a settlement for the pay dispute to nurses, there was going to be extra money for schools, extra money for hospitals, it was going to deal with all the outstanding public services. So you're saying to the public, this is what we're offering these politicians. Now, who was going to be the person that was going to refuse that? Mm -hmm. Spark a new election, walk up a path and knock a door and go, hello, would you vote for me? I'm the person that turned down the, the pay settlement for the nurses. So they bounced them into a position that they just simply couldn't get out of. I think it was it showed that both Simon Coveney and Julian Smith, when you put them together, they were quite a formidable team. They work very well together. They clearly get on with each other. Julian Smith is a world away from you know mm -hmm. what we've had previously as, as Secretary of State's former Chief Whip. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was putting them in a position. Um, and therefore, I think that it was inevitable once that Arning Foster came out and made that quite positive statement, once the DUP said they were accepting then Sinn Féin would have had to be the people who turned the deal down. They weren't going to put themselves in that position. So what happened then in the snowball effect from that, I think we could all sort of see mm -hmm. what had happened and how the, the British and Irish governments had managed to make it come together. Mm -hmm. Sarah, what did you make of that night uh, three weeks ago? It was it was very good theatre. You know, they came down the hill from Stormont and it was very dark and the Stormont was behind them and we want to get this place back up and running. And it's just like Alison said, is they clearly bounced them into the deal. It was very clever politicking. Um, I think well, maybe we'll come on to it. Maybe was it sly politicking? Maybe was there, did they not get into too much detail? But they, they definitely put the parties in a position where they had to accept this or they made it very difficult for them to say no because of what was being offered, but what was there. And especially the focus with the health strikes going on at the same time. It made it very difficult for the politicians not to accept it. And even though a couple of parties maybe took a couple of days to come around it, you could tell that the pressure was on. So I, I think it was as soon as you saw them coming down, you thought, well, this this really is last chance saloon. But I think also in the run up to it, um, Gillian Smith put a lot of pressure. I think he seemed quite serious about going towards an election. He seemed to be to be quite, unlike previous Secretary of State, he was willing to go that far. So I think that that was, it was very clever between the two of them. Um, it, was, it was like a game show, wasn't yeah. it? It was like when they pull out the prize, yes. they go, this is what you could, <laughs> could win. win yeah. If only you answer these <laughs> questions correctly, yeah. it's like this could all be yours. It's like bullseye, you know, yeah. take, take it back, take it back if they don't get it, you know? It was like, yeah, it's crazy. But when you look at this, you know, you're kind of in the back of your head, this is what was keeping the parties out for three years. And you kind of read the agreement and you were, for me, I know. I hope this isn't. I know lots of parties think the media are inherently cynical, but you're kind of reading this, the solutions that they were going back in on. You're kind of going, "This was what was keeping it down for three years." Well, what did you make of it? Did you find the agreement underwhelming, or or as expected? The language proposals, I think, were very similar to what the DUP had been unable to deliver in the the February 18 deal. It was 18, wasn't it? I've lost track of my years. 
Um, there wasn't that much difference too. There wasn't a great deal of difference. And we know then that they come under pressure from the Orange Order and hardline elements within their own party and, and parts of loyalism to reject that deal. But what had moved on since then is you, we didn't really notice that there was no government for a year. We probably didn't particularly notice that there was no government for two years. Mm -hmm. But after three years, we were really noticing mm -hmm. it. And I think that what happened was that those sort of red line issues had been overtaken by the complete crisis in public service. And that was when we had the Westminster election. They'd got a taste of what the public were, were, were saying to them at the doors and why they might have told us it was all wonderful and great. That is what they were being told. They were knocking doors and they were saying, I am waiting 52 weeks on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. Get back and get it sorted out. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that they were the key issues and then they knew that that had overtaken everything else. We've seen a lot, a lot of lobbying going on. The Orange Order brought up Stormont. The Irish language groups brought up Stormont. The Secretary of State was meeting with hardline elements within loyalism. All of that was going on at the background, but those people no longer seemed to have the power of the clout that they had before because the power of the angels on the wings, the nurses had overtaken them. Nurses, you know, first time in 100 years that the RCN had, had, had went on strike, them standing in every street corner. It affects every single man, woman and child in this place. Whereas some of those other issues maybe uh, you know affect certain sections or certain demographics, so I think that had overtaken everything. And so when it, the the governments realised that before Christmas, I was speaking to Julian Smith. I, we had talked about the health service, and he said, "I am not fixing this. This is not my job to fix it. They can fix it themselves. The money's there, and they've been told that." And I think that that was where the pressure came. So when that. Saturday, when we were all sitting and they were electing the, the ministers to post, I don't think that we would have been there had it not been for the healthcare workers. And they have to take, you know, there has to be a lot of, a lot of this has to go towards them. And the brave step that they took and the fact that, you know, single parents, girls working four days a week, you know, as nurses lost two days pay before Christmas, you know, they have to get the credit for, for putting so much political pressure on those parties. Okay, Sarah, what did you make of the actual, what ended up in the detail of the agreement? Yeah, bits of it were very like the previous deal, um, particularly with, with the language provisions, it was very much they're, they're going to use the Northern Ireland Act as a sort of screen for it all. They're going, it's all going to be amendments to that act, but it's not it's not going to be a standalone Irish language act, but there's, there's going to be lots of it. There's going to be an Irish language commissioner. You know, there's obviously been different concessions and things going on behind the scenes, but it was the, the executive commitments that were in the deal really that, that that struck me because you know you've the bedroom tax the healthcare um, the healthcare strike the education dispute that sort of thing all these things that really should have been dealt with for for the past three years and I think that was really what what made the deal and of course the name of the deal you know new decade new approach really was a massive indicator that look <laughs> something has to be done here so it was I think it was what a lot of people were expecting in a lot of cases but it's it's the nitty-gritty detail mm -hmm. I think that it's what it didn't say I think mm -hmm. that that's what was most interesting about it it's a good deal for commissioners wasn't it there's a lot of yeah. commissioners <laughs> I'm hoping there might be a job for me in the future somewhere <laughs> talk about these spa jobs and much to get paid I'm thinking there's a cliche commissioner's job lined I mean, up somewhere, somewhere, in, somewhere in the yeah. we need one of those for sure definitely um, I'll have to speak to the government about that no it, it, it felt like just you know if you weren't if you weren't getting a commissioner's job you were feeling left out <laughs> so <laughs> just, just want to ask you an aspect of the deal it was obviously about legacy now it jarred very much with what was being said from um, Johnny Mercer who was I think he is the veterans minister in the UK conservative government what came out in the new decade and your approach seemed to jar a wee bit with what he was saying in some of the statements. And I know there's been a bit since about what what commitments will be followed, just because I know, Alison, you, you you deal with this as security correspondent. What do you make of that? And there's also going to be a veterans commissioner, remember, among all those commissioners. Well, um, the following week after the deal, obviously, when Boris Johnson landed in Stormont, there was a number of questions that you were allowed to ask him. My question to him was how did the commitments made in this new decade new approach deal, which said they're going to uh, implement the Stormont House Agreement. 
how does that not conflict with what it said in the Queen's speech and what, what commitments he has given to protecting veterans from what they keep calling fixatious prosecutions? He said it. He, he answered a question. It just wasn't my question. I'm not particularly sure what question he was answering. <laughs> <laughs> but in particular, you know, in Boris Johnson fashion, he just basically rambled on for five minutes and then walked away. But then they have since went back to that again, spoke about that in Westminster. The two things just cannot work alongside each other at all. They are completely misleading both the British public and victims here in relation to what they can deliver and what they can't. They can deliver the, the legislation within 100 days because the legislation is quite a simple mm -hmm. part of the, the, the Stormont House Agreement. All that will be is, as part of this agreement, there's going to be, as part of Stormont House, there was supposed to be a truth commission, you know, a truth gathering process where people who didn't want prosecutions realised that that wasn't going to be open to them, but might want mm -hmm. the truth and maybe want to encourage either the government or paramilitary groups to come forward and give them some answers. That requires what you would have is a sort of disappeared commission type, but you know, provisions where you cannot be prosecuted for providing that. That's the legislation. You can you can put that legislation in place and never use it. It can sit there for you know the next hundred years. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they're going to implement anything. Mm -hmm. You can't have truth and prosecutions run alongside each other. I know that there are victims groups who will argue with me that you can, but you can't. You just can't. So I think that to have both of those things in it and to say that and then to say what is happening with veterans. For a long time I've been very suspicious of what the British government are up to and I remember I think it was about five years ago that I had put a, you know, a, a story in the front page of the Irish News saying that they were looking at a, an amnesty or statute of limitations and people said it was mad in the head that it could never, it could never happen. The problem for them now is that they also have numerous and I mean billions of, of pounds worth of prosecutions and civil cases pending from Iraq and Afghanistan. They are far more concerned about that than they are about what has been done in this place. Um, it's my thinking, if you look back to when Theresa May was, was Home Secretary, she had argued that, that, that Britain should remain within the EU economic bloc because it was good for them, but that they should leave the convention because mm. the convention as Home Secretary was preventing her from extraditing people back to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. I think that that's where they're gonna go for next. I think that once we get the, the EU withdrawal out of the way, I will not be surprised if the next thing they start going for is withdrawal of the convention because that means that they don't have to be um, stand up to those commitments which are going to cause some serious problems down the line yeah. for the behaviour of soldiers in those countries but will also then manage by a big net to cover ourselves and to do away with the need for those articles too. Now that is me looking forward to the future. At the present you can't have an investigations branch and a truth recovery branch because if me and you were part of the same family and our father was murdered and I decided I just wanted truth and you decided you wanted justice, how do those two people then get what they want from that? If I get truth, I can hand that information to you and you could take it to the legacy investigations branch and say, I want a prosecution. Mm -hmm. So the two things just can't, they, they can't run alongside each other. Um, I think that when Johnny Marshall stands up and speaks in the Commons, he's also misleading veterans. It's very, I think that victims here have been used as currency for far too long. This is not the answer to their problems. I know that some were delighted to see that that was in the agreement and that this was all going to be, this is huge for victims. It's not, this is still going to drag out for a long, long time. Um, and if there's one thing that you can be sure of is that do not trust the British government to deliver on legacy. Okay. 
Speaking of trust, uh, a few days after the financial mm. settlement, which we were led to believe was going to be sizable and large, which was the thing, obviously being up in Stormont on the Saturday, yeah. there was the fear creeping into all the parties that this was maybe not as advertised as people tried to, yeah. uh, tried to work out the detail. So two billion was announced as the figurehead, but when you factored out the Barnet consequentials, which is the money yeah. we were gonna get anyway, it's really a billion pounds over five years so it doesn't work out to be that huge amount of money anyway yeah sarah did, were the parties sold a pop or should they have kneeled down jim alistair said they should have kneeled down the detail before they went in but i think so i mean obviously jim alistair's a qc he would know that when you go into <laughs> negotiations and you agree a deal you ask for the detail and how it's going to be paid for um i think because they were bounced into it they maybe didn't ask but i mean it's quite clear you would like to hope that throughout the process they would have maybe asked and said, well, all the stuff that we have commitments to, we're not going to be able to pay for this ourselves. Um, so that one, we've got the one billion and I'm, I'm part of that's for the nurses dispute, part of it's for the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland. So that's going to be for commissioners. There's not really a lot left to go for. I mean, welfare mitigations is something that the assembly says it's going to um, legislate for. I mean, we're not, presumably it's coming from that one billion, but we're not clear yet, you know, wh where it is going to come from. And um, it does look as though they have been sold a pup or it's hard to tell whether maybe Julian Smith has made commitments he can't hold on to. Maybe he went back to London and was told, no, we're not doing this. Or maybe whether they just didn't ask. But it is quite embarrassing, I think, for some of our politicians that they are having to maybe run around now and try and get funding. And I think the key point was when Julian Smith said, you know, you have to sort out your priorities. I think it's putting it back on the parties to say, look, you need to sort this out, you need to work out where the money should go. And I think it's 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 the hope, I think, that the politicians will look at the, the crisis in the health service, education, things like that, and put that their priority and maybe put other issues, cultural issues, maybe to the one side for a while. Mm -hmm. So I think that's maybe where the strategy's been. There was meetings about the financial mm. package, I know, as part of those talks. I've been speaking to people, they were getting out of meetings, talking about the financial package, talking about it and getting someone to sign on the dotted line are, are two very different things. I think if someone hands you, you know, in a, uh, an agreement and they say as part of this agreement I pledge as the British government that I will do X, Y and Z, you automatically assume that means they're paying for it as well. You know, someone asks you out for dinner, you expect that they're paying the bill at the end. That turns out not to be not to be the case. There's a real difficulty here for the politicians because we have been neglected, we have got unique circumstances, we are, you know, post conflict society, we do have high levels of mental yeah. health, which leads to dependence on welfare and all sorts of other things. But we also have to then be forward thinking and see how are we going to sustain ourselves. I think this is a particular problem for Republicans and Nationalists because Brexit has opened up the debate, this sort of thing, 32 debate. Let's talk about New Ireland and how, well, we have to talk about how we're going to finance that New Ireland. Mm -hmm. And all of this current mess, you know, leads into that conversation. So let's problem solve these problems and talk about how we'll deal with this. So we have to be revenue raising. We have to power back the civil service. There's far too much reliant in this place on the public sector. But to do that, then you have to bring in outside investment so that you have to create jobs to get rid of jobs. And all of that is something that previous administrations just haven't wanted to deal with or tackle. Mm -hmm. They haven't wanted to put revenue raising structures in place because they're unpopular. And we know that they're unpopular. None of us want to pay more money. That's just that's common sense. But I think that there's been very some very specific problems that maybe they didn't see when they agreed to go into this deal because it was immediately to sort out the problems that existed, the backlog of problems. But let's talk about that as to how that plays out in the future. How do we talk about how we're going to create create a sustainable Northern Ireland after Brexit or, albeit, you know, 20 years time in New Ireland, if we can't actually pay for the services we have with the money coming in at the minute, given how much we're subsidised. So I think that it's unfortunate 
that we're going to be left in a situation where public services are going to be cut short again. I think that the British government have once again, I think, shown that if you're going to go into negotiations with them, get it signed, sealed, delivered, have 16 witnesses standing at the side of the room <laughs> to back you up. But we know all that anyway. But going forward, I think that there's going to have to be some very difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. There's going to have to be money saving, and that means the duplication of services that we have here because of our sectarian situation is going to have to come to an end. We're going to have to look at that in terms of education, in terms of all sorts of other things. And they're very difficult conversations, but in the long term, they're very worthwhile because these things are important. These things are important as to how we're going to sustain ourselves. We can't always say, but we're a post-conflict society. You have to help us, you have to pay for us. Eventually, there will come a time when we will no longer be that society. We'll have to be self-sustaining. So I think that the politicians are going to find this a quite a difficult mm -hmm. period of government because they're going to have to, instead of saying, well, I can't close that school down because that's in my constituency and no one will vote for me if I close that down, they're going to have to look at the bigger yeah. picture and think about how yeah. we sustain this place long term. I do think, you know, it, it is, you know, obviously, you know, that they are going to the Treasury after money. It is a lot of it is money that is necessary. And I think somebody said, you know, we're going to have to spend more to to get less, yeah. basically, for quite a while, and in, in that aspect of it is very frustrating. My sense of the British government is that they're basically putting us in a wee box to the side and going, right, you work away and we'll just leave yeah. you yeah. for a while. This is a problem for unionism, though, as well, because we're talking about nationalism and harder than we say, well, we can't build a new Ireland if we can't pay for it. But for unionists as well, if you think about what Brexit was about, it was about English nationalism and them saying, why should we pay that money to the EU? Why don't we keep all that money for ourselves? So unionism has to remember that those people that hold the power, those English nationalists, might at some stage go, why are we paying for those people? Why don't we just keep all that money for ourselves? And so for them to, to at this point in time, um, start. that's why I think that they're so keen to talk about revenue raising and bringing money in. We talk about the Good Friday Agreement and how the future of this place will be decided by the people who live in this island. No, it won't. It will be decided by people in Westminster and Bain Counters who one day will decide that we just simply cost too much, we're too much hassle, and just like the EU, they don't want to pay for us anymore. Yeah. And that's the truth. And that may come in five years' time or ten years' time. And whether the DUP have, have faced up to the fact now that the people who in Westminster who thought they were allies will shaft them at a moment's notice or not, I'm not quite sure. But at this point in time, they have to be seen to be trying to create a stable and sustainable government because the only way that the rest of the UK will want to hang on to us if this place is seen as stable and sustainable and self-sufficient and is not constantly a headache to those people at Westminster because the more trouble they cause them, the, lo the less chance there is of them wanting to keep a hold of here for another 50 or 100 years. When the government was formed, obviously we've got five parties back in now, so we've moved away from the, the brief DUP Sinn Féin Claire Sugden administration that lasted all of six months. Um, all the five parties are back in. Um, just want to, what do you make of the people that are around that executive? So there are, we've got more women in the new executive, so it's 50-50 in the executive table in terms of gender parity. Um, obviously, you, I think it's a bit younger as well than the previous executive. What do you make of the personalities that are sitting around that table? We've got a very few co-options as well, because remember in that period of government, quite a few people took themselves off and mm -hmm. thought, no, I'm not hanging around waiting on this. So, I mean, I think Deirdre Hargay, Diane Dodds, mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I can think who else, is there any other ministers who co-opted? She was elected in 2016, but she co-opted out and co-opted back co in again. Yeah. co-opted back in again. So, yeah, so I think that that's unusual. That's probably something that we've never seen, seen before. Um, I think that there are people who really need to be given a chance, and it's not like journalists to be optimistic, but there are so many things that have been sitting, um, reports, studies, public consultations, 
the legislation, I'd back that up, the secondary legislation needs to all be put in place, whether that be in abortion legislation. I know that Naomi Long is talking about bringing the domestic abuse bills through Stormont. All of those things, I think that we need to see how this shapes up. I, I have particular, you know, sympathy for Robin Swan. I think, you know, that is one of the last um, picks that to take health was very brave. I think that health is a disaster because it's been neglected for so long. It's a complete and utter mess. My daughter phoned up to try and get a dermatology, uh, a, a child dermatologist to look at her daughter and was told it was 33 weeks uh, of a waiting list just for the child to see somebody. Initially, now if you take that in something that's causing you, you know, all sorts of pain and, and the waiting list, I mean, that's something that he has a, a real body of work trying to get that into some shape. Um, but there's some people there who I really like. I think Dirty Hargy's going to be very interesting. Um, people haven't really seen her because she was only a counsellor. She was a counsellor in Murrah, but many people might not be aware of her. She was a counsellor on the Monday, co-opted on the Wednesday, and she was a minister by the Saturday. That was a that very was quick rise to, yeah. rise to power. Um, Dirty Hargy's really good. I think she's, she's going to be. I think she's going to be a very good minister. I also think there's a lot of empathy there, which politicians sometimes don't have. Um, and I think that she'll bring something new to to the executive that we haven't haven't had before. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, do the ministers stand on their own two feet and make their own decisions or are they still being constantly, you know, bombarded by what we've seen in the RHI and the spectre of the all-powerful special advisors? Will these people still be hovering around in the background? The special advisors will obviously have a pretty good idea who they're going to be now. No great surprises there. But are these people going to bring skills and, and knowledge to that role instead of just, you know, being the party hatchet men, which is, you know, what the reputation they got in the past? So. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it is so new. We haven't had it for three years, and I think that what we've came back with is better than what we had. That period where people maybe got their cards marked, the RHI inquiry has definitely, I think, you know, put manners on some people, we've been told, and it's in the new decade near approach. There will be minutes taken of meetings from now on. There's not minute in your meetings because you're afraid of someone saying what a disaster you are, your job. You know, that all has to stop. So let's see if it's open and it's open, more open, transparent, accountable. And if they're actually, but I think that the, the big test will come when they have to start making hard, unpopular decisions, but unpopular decisions for the greater good. Yeah. What do you think of the, the new executive, the, the, the members that are around it? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's obviously we've got all five back in now. You know, the SDLP and Ulster Unionist Party have decided to go in along with Alliance. Um, it's think um, in terms of the challenges going forward, I think Diane Dodds is going to have a very difficult task with Brexit coming down the line along with Evan Poots who's obviously in agriculture so that's that's going to be interesting for her because she's going to have to try and deal with this income and sea border and all the tariffs and everything else going forward. Robin Swan definitely has the most difficult job. He really does have a very, very, I, I, I do wonder whether the Ulster Unionists picked that but I, mean, I suspect maybe they thought well, we want to go in and we want to be the ones to try and fix it. So. That's good. Um, I think Deidre Harker, I agree, I think she'll be really good in communities. She's a really strong background. She was a fantastic advocate for the markets. Mm. So I think she'll be perfect for that role. Um, I'm interested to see what happens with this new party leaders forum that we're going to get going forward. I'm interested to see how that goes and, and how what turns out from that part. It's almost like they're all going to get into a room and basically just shout at each other and, and try and work things out. It's like a slagging room. So, it is, basically, yeah. So, I get a stick this yeah. I'm wondering, you're not allowed to speak unless you're holding the speaking yeah. stick. Yeah, or they're all just allowed to beat each other and then they leave and that's it. But they, it just, I think, you know, Naomi Long has a very interesting entry for justice going forward. She's going to be dealing with the Gillen review um, and things like that and um, also possibly legacy as well. That's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for her going forward. But talk about revenue raising. There's some serious money yeah. to be made if you 
sort out the, the mess that is our justice department. Exactly. So she she and I mean and as I say, you know, things like legal aid and stuff like that, she's gonna have to tackle all of that. So so there's there's unique challenges for every single department, but the hope is obviously that they're gonna be able to work together at the moment. The music is very good. They're all being very proactive and talking to each other, but we'll see how long that goes for. I'm amazed at their away day. They all came out afterwards to stand for a joint kind of video they allow Arlene and Michelle to talk and speak and you had Nicola Mallon, you had mm -hmm. Naomi, you had um, Robin Swan, mm -hmm. all that and then you had uh, Christopher Stalford on The View last week saying we need to give Robin Swan the political cover, all of us to do the hard decisions. Obviously you've got Nicola Mallon who's got mm -hmm. MOT issues in terms of dealing yeah. with that in terms of her but equally no one's breaking ranks within the executive to be very quick which is what would have happened in the past so well so far it's still very early days it's sort of like you know those big family holidays and we all get together for two weeks we're sort of in the you know the drinking party and stage now you know the free bar and everything and then you'll get to the second week you know where everybody will hate each other don't ever speak to me again as soon as we go home i don't want to even delete my number from your phone um, we haven't got to that stage yet because at this point in time they're finding their feet, they're getting the grips of their portfolios, they're trying to see how they can make the limited money that they now realise they have stretched to cover all the things that they have mm -hmm. pledged to do um, and no one has had, no one has needed political cover yet. So the question will be if it comes to the fact where someone has to say we need to amalgamate these schools and close them down, this is costing too much money, will they get the cover for that? If it comes to the fact where um, you know Robin Swan says we cannot have three hospitals in Belfast anymore, one of them has to go, will he get the cover for that? So these are the sort of things going forward I think it's interesting to see because if we know that it's going to be an election in what, 18 months and two years two time, years, yeah. come that time I can assure you they're not all going to be saying what a great job my mate over there is doing when they're competing for votes. All of a sudden they'll be look at the mess he's making of this and the disaster she's made of that. Um, so they do have a brief, a brief period. but. I mean, I'm trying as best as I can to be as optimistic about it because we complained when they wouldn't go back into government. Now they are. Let's see what they can what they can actually deliver. I think that um, the, the, as far as the British government are, this is now going to be a completely different phase. They're no longer babysitting. It is you are big boys and girls. Now go ahead and do this yourselves. Mm -hmm. You were not going to come riding in at any point in time and take the heat or take the flack. Or, or you know fund another RHI so you do that again you're on your own um, so I think that that's been quite clear uh, as regards to that and then the Irish government have made commitments regarding infrastructure as well so we'll have to see them deliver that we don't know which Irish government is going that's to be the people who are going to deliver that infrastructure because we're that, still waiting on this and other even that elections. was a bit of a disappointment because we found out it was something that they had committed to funding 15 years ago and, and they still, pulled the funding in the, during the crash <laughs> <laughs> they pulled the funding during the crash and will they now deliver the funding <laughs> is, is what, what remains to be seen okay sarah kind of the music and how it's gonna work in the longer term do you, do you agree with what alison's saying there that all very well and good now but again as we get five months out from that next assembly election because we forget they do only have about two years yeah. to actually govern and do those things so I, I, yeah I, I mean i i think there's a huge incentive for them to keep going because they know the public are furious and i think you know that that election you know westminster election and the, even the previous assembly and, and, and european elections the public need them to get back and they want them to go back and make this work so they really have a huge that hanging over their heads but they know that they will be punished severely if it doesn't work um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe it's going to be two years until there's going to be another election. But I think we've got further challenges coming down the road from Brexit and things like that. We've got this, the end of this transition phase is on New Year's Eve <laughs> this year. And we're going to be entering this front stop. So I'm hoping that they're going to be able to make this work. But they're going to have to be 
honest with each other. They're going to have to take very difficult decisions. They're going to have to work together. And I think that's that. My my naive hope is that they will. Nobody wants what's coming down the line. Can they all just get together, work together to try and face this? Will they do it? We don't know. Um, so I, I do have concerns with the long-term sustainability of this. I think you know, as long as one party can maybe resign and, and trigger and collapse the whole thing again, we've maybe got a couple of wee safeguards in now with the new deal. But I still think that's that's always possible. Okay, so much to unpack, and we'll watch this space. Although it is nice to not finish off Slugger TV by asking, do you think the odds are of getting a deal? So <laughs> I'll finish off by asking, um, odds of it. Lasting seasoned political observer who's been doing this for 20 years uh, told me on the Saturday came back uh, they were given it 60-40 of it lasting so what do you think? I don't know we've stopped really you know historically talking about Brexit now, now that it's sort of inevitable that it's, it's going to happen um, we need we need to create investment in this place and we need to bring in you know outside money and investment can you do that after Brexit I don't know so I think that a lot of it depends on how the British treat this place after Brexit. The sea border that we've been promised is not going to exist is almost almost certainly going to exist. Um, and so it'll depend it'll depend on that and how those two parties who have such different opinions with regard to Brexit manage to work together in face of, of what, what's going to come in that direction. Okay. Sarah I, I think I'll be optimistic. I think they'll get it to the next assembly election. I think they'll make it that far. Further down the line, I don't think I would be. I wouldn't. I would. I think I would be a bold woman to make to make that sort of long term prediction. But I think they'll go to the assembly election. I, I just. I think the appetite's there for it now. Two years at least. Okay. Alison, Sarah, thank you so much. And that is all we have time for on this month's edition of Slugger TV. We'll be back in February. You can keep up to date with all the updates on sluggerotool.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for watching. <laughs>